Well, thank you so much. Good morning. Well, if you haven't done so already, now is our opportunity to turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, portion of which we were uh, privileged to hear read to us just a few seconds ago. Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to be exploring together verse 1 down through verse 17 today in the second of the four-part series we're dealing with the promised gift that God has provided for you and for me. Of course, we know that gift ultimately is the gift of salvation found in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Find your way, if you would, to the Older Testament. We're looking at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, this is the golden age prophecy that Isaiah is speaking in, 8th century B.C., and to set the background very simply is that uh, Judah is under siege. Tribes to the north, combined with the nation of Syria, known then as Aram, combine their forces to attack Judah. Everything's on the line. This point, Ahaz is king, but he does not walk with the Lord. A religious unbeliever. What's at stake is this. If Ahaz is captured, put to death, Ahaz is of the house of David. God made a promise, an eternal promise to David that it would be an everlasting kingdom. If Ahaz dies, there is no Christmas which means there's no Good Friday, which means there is no Easter Sunday. Everything is wrapped up in God being faithful to his promise and making absolutely certain that the line of David leading onward to Christ Jesus is intact. No disruption. So this siege which is taking place around Judah is much more than just simply an attack upon a nation. This is an attack upon God's promised plan of bringing Messiah Christ Jesus into this world. Stakes are high. We want to understand how all this works out as we look to our Lord now in prayer. And so, Father, what we want to do is to be able to explore these verses together, to be able to understand very thoroughly how in the midst of the threatening times in which the people of Judah found themselves, There's a God who breaks in. There's the God who is faithful to his promise, who's intent on keeping his word, and how you kept the line intact, and from Older Testament on to Newer Testament, on through to today, we see here that you are faithful to your promise. And so we're asking that in a very powerful way as we explore now in this prophecy, we'll be able to understand better how it relates to modern day life. The moments are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. And we're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1935, and Dr. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the professor as well as the, the head of a theological school in Germany. But the skies were darkening, Nazism was rising, 
it seemed as though everything was on the line when it came to whether or not people would be able to live and what the quality of life would be all about. The school was thriving, the school was very important, but the Nazis were well aware of the fact that that school served as a threat to Nazism in general, Hitler in particular. And 10 years later, Bonhoeffer would be arrested. As he was put in, his, in the concentration camp, the prisoners were not allowed to speak to one another. They were only allowed to be able to communicate off and on through code. But there was a particular code that stood out among them that was not known to the Nazis whatsoever. It was what was known then and known today in history as the code of three taps. And what that signified was simply God with us. It was the three taps of Emmanuel. The passage you and I are exploring today is the three taps of Emmanuel. The skies are dark and everything seems so threatening when it comes to matters of life. But God is going to make a very powerful statement in such threatening times via the lips of Isaiah to a king who is faithless to God, namely Ahaz. And it's the three taps, you see, of intervention. God with us. Emmanuel. And this story that we're exploring today is the story of Emmanuel and how all of this began to unfold. Joseph would know that story well. Joseph feels like life is rather threatened for him as well. When God breaks in, and God has a way of breaking in, with the three taps, you see, and so the angel would say to Joseph, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And now Joseph would find that he's part of the three taps of promise that God is going to use as part of the strategy for bringing Jesus Christ into this world. There are two significant provisions that I want to draw out from these 17 verses this morning that we're exploring together. It all has to do with people who find themselves in threatening circumstances, threatening times, and maybe in your own personal world, that's how you might describe it at this particular moment. If that's the case, I want to enter into this with you. If that's not yet the case, or maybe it has been the case, there has direct bearing nonetheless for us. It's the three taps of Emmanuel that stand out here. That first out of verse 1 down to verse 9, in threatening times, the challenge is, first of all, to stand firm in the faith, noting the assurance that God has given. Verses 1 through 9 are, are dripping with assurance. Ahaz has not been walking with the Lord. You can see that when you explore on your own 2 Kings chapter 16, which is the very background, you see, to this passage of Scripture. 
but he did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Instead, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel to the north. It was a divided kingdom now. But lo and behold, the kings of the north, which served as his, so to speak, uh, his model, were the very ones now attacking him. And it seems as though when we go against God's will, the very approach we use comes back to thwart us. And so here you have it in verse 1. We're told that it's in the days of Ahaz. Came out of a godly heritage. Son of Jotham, who walked with the Lord. Son of Isaiah, king of Judah. He was a great king of Judah. But now notice the combination of forces here at work. There's Raisin, the king of Assyria. And Pekah, the son of Ramaliah. King of Israel, part of the ten tribes to the north. They've combined forces, you see, and they're about to attack Judah. They came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but simply could not yet mount an attack against it. What are you going to do? What I want you to see in verse 2 is that not once... Not twice, three times, you're going to have some version, some reference to the idea of the house of David. In other words, now, what Isaiah is about to do is to draw your attention back to the promise that had initially been given to David regarding the eternal kingdom found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Will the promise be null and void even though God said it was the eternal kingdom? Does God lie? In verse 2, the house of David was told. doesn't say Ahaz was told. In other words, this is for the entire population that finds themselves under siege. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, I want you to see now this has gone to the emotional core of the inner leadership as well as the general population as a whole. Notice how it's phrased. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Pause. As you look back over your life, what has shaken you? What has threatened you? Which days seemed in particular most overwhelming to you? might have been a series of losses. It might have been some matter medical, physical, financial, relational. But all of a sudden, you found the landscape changing. It's as if your life was or is under siege. Now, notice how God picks up on that and speaks of the emotional core of the inner leadership of Judah at this point, as well as the general angst within the population, you and I are told in the very same words which were used to describe the situation in Bethlehem when it was announced that there was this one born king of the Jews and Herod is troubled and everybody is shook up. So likewise, we are told 
The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What they need are the three taps of Emmanuel. Do those taps resound in your heart? They resounded in a man by the name of Chrysostom's heart. For you see, he was brought before the Roman emperor, and the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. Listen to the give and the take of it all, as recorded in history. Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. Then I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, said the noble champion of the faith. For my life is hid with Christ in God. I'll take away your treasures. No, but you cannot, for my treasures in heaven and my heart is there. But I'll drive you away from humanity and, and you shall have no friend left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. And you hear the three taps of Emmanuel resonating in the heart of this man who is being threatened. Where do you feel most threatened? Where do you find yourself most overwhelmed? You know your heart. What goes to the very core of your emotional center? where you find yourself under siege. Have you introduced Emmanuel into your threatening situation? Ahaz needs to do that. Ahaz has not yet done that. Ahaz needs the promise. But Ahaz seems to be neglecting the fact that this promise was delivered to and through the house of David, which he is part of. He is one of the descendants of David. He is a transmitter of the promise. But unfortunately for him, he's not a beneficiary of the promise. Even though he is faithless to God's promise, God is faithful to his promise and will still use and keep Ahaz alive in order for the next generation, Hezekiah, to come along, who will continue on until we get to the ultimate David, Jesus Christ. And so now, as you pick up on the emotional state of this individual, as well as the emotional state as the population as a whole, you're up to verse 3, and you nod your head, don't you? Because isn't it like God to start off with the phrase you see here, and the Lord? That's the covenantal name for God. That's the relational name for God. That is the God who is the keeper of the promise. He is the God of the three taps. And you want to see now what God has to say via his word where he will combine the verbal and the visual to arrest the attention you would think of it Ahaz. Where the Lord said to Isaiah, 
Go out. Go out to meet Ahaz. Now, Isaiah is an 8th century B.C. prophet, maybe the greatest of all the prophets in terms of all that he's offered you and me in his writings. Go out to meet Ahaz. But now, notice that he is not to go alone. You. And Shear Yashub, your son. And you say, Gary, Shear Yashub? What does that mean? It means a remnant shall return. What fascinates us is that not once, not twice, three times in Isaiah 7 and 8, you will see the mention of a child. This is the first of the three. Shear Yeshub. A remnant shall return. But what that signifies at this point is that this young man is a visual statement to the entire population that they will be temporarily removed from the landscape of Israel, from Judah. But then you and I know our history. And in 1948, the people regathered, regained statehood. You see, God is the God of the three taps. God is the keeper of the promise. God is the keeper of the land as well as the people. And though there were attempts throughout the Old Testament on into um, the 1900s and the 20, into this century, uh, Hitler and so forth, of annihilating the Jews, God is the keeper of the promise. A remnant shall return. Your son. Now, what you're supposed to do, Isaiah, is to, with your son, this visual and the verbal combined here is this entire population is all shook up. I want you to go meet Ahaz. There in verse 3. At the end of the conduit of the upper room on the highway of the washer's field. And you say, Gary, what's that all about? Geographically speaking, here's what was going on. Ahaz, the king, knows that his population is under siege. They're threatened. He's checking out the water supply. He wants to make absolutely certain there's enough resource here to be able to withstand the siege as they hunker down. Now the question is, for you and for me, where do we go in such threatening times? He's concerned so much with his natural resources, he has failed to take into account the supernatural aspect of the sovereign God who had made that promise to David. And now here is a descendant of David who is not walking in the will of God. And what's he going to do? He doesn't turn to God, he turns to the water supply. Which leads to the question in threatening times, where do you turn? What's your first goal to, if you will, when it comes to times in which it seems as though everything is under siege? Here's what, here's what Isaiah is informed he's supposed to say. Say to him, be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint, and so forth. Sound familiar? 
when Moses was standing with the Israelites before the Red Sea, in threatening circumstances, in threatening times, this man, my favorite in the Older Testament, as a leader, stood before the people and said, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. There are times in which what God is calling you and calling me to do is to stand firm, be quiet, regroup internally, understand where the true resources of life are to be found. Don't go to your washer's field first. Go to your sovereign God first and explore the promise of God that's found in the word. Professor Dr. Bruce Walkie was talking, telling his students one time about a man who was attempting to cross the frozen St. Lawrence River in Canada. Wasn't sure whether or not the ice would hold. Man first tested it by laying one hand on it, got down on his knees, gingerly began to make his way across. And when he got to the middle of the frozen river, trembling fear, Walkie writes, he heard a noise behind him. And looking back, he saw a team of horses pulling a carriage coming down the road toward the river, and upon reaching the river, it didn't stop. Bolted right onto the ice, past him, while he sat there on all fours, cringing because of his fears. What paralyzes you? What keeps you on fours, all fours? What I want you to bear in mind is that the value of our faith is determined by the object of our faith. The question is, is the ice thick enough to keep you standing? The promise is such that the ice is thick enough to keep you standing. Say to him, be careful, be quiet. Sometimes you got to say this to yourself. Time for self-counsel. <sighs> Do not fear. Faith casts out fear. Do not let your heart be faint. Self-counsel. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, that's how God views these two kings. Fierce anger of Raisin and Syria, the son of Ramalia. But now you read on. You're up to verse 5. Because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have devised evil against you, saying, let's go against Judah, terrify it, let's conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. In other words, they want to put up a puppet king who will simply do what they dictate. But you know something's greater at stake here. If they come up with an alternative king to one who's of the line of David, there's no Christmas 
which means there's no Good Friday, which means there's no Easter Sunday. Everything has been canceled and void because it requires one who would be king of the Jews, one who would be son of David, in other words, Jesus, to die on that cross and be raised three days later. Now you see there's something more at stake here than merely the siege of people. This is a siege against the promise of God. It's the siege the evil one is attempting to produce to thwart the coming of Messiah into this world. But God's going to counter it with the three taps of prophecy. The story of Emmanuel. So they're in the midst of it all. They've got an alternative to God's plan. A guy by the name of Tabil, son of Tabil. So now the question is, do you go for the alternative to God's word or the authenticity of God's word? Ahaz, you're going to have to choose. Thus says the Lord God in verse 7. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezan. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from be, being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. But now he's going to get personal. And God has a way of doing this for you, doing this for me, doesn't he? And now push comes to shove. Notice the wording here. Notice the way things are phrased here. When you get it to the very heart of verse 9, if you, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now there's a word play here in the Hebrew because the word firm is the Hebrew verb amon from which we get amen. And since the verbs in verse 9 are second person plural, it means that both Ahaz and his whole administration are being challenged now to trust in God's promise. The question is, will they? And the question for you and me is, will we? In other words, we're teetering now on belief versus unbelief. Verse 9 doesn't say, if you don't believe, my word will fall. It says, if you do not believe, you will fall while my word will stand. You see? Yeah, the bus is going to take off from Sheboygan County and head to Milwaukee, whether you're on it or not. Yes. You see? God's faithful. And God's got everything on schedule. God is the keeper of the prophecy. God is the God of the three taps. When everything seems so threatening and life seems so challenging, if you've ever read much about World War I and the writers that were trying to describe it, William Yeats, the poet, used this extraordinary expression which has been quoted time and time and time again in threatening times. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Anarchy is loosed upon the world. 
And there is that sense where the evil one is attempting to create anarchy and offer complete opposition to the one who is seated on the throne. And in threatening times, you and I are therefore challenged to stand firm in the faith. We're noting here the assurance that God has given in 1 through 9. So now the question is, how do you respond? What do you do? Are you going to put your faith in alternatives, in the water supply? Or are you going to put your faith in the God who offers living water via Jesus Christ? You're on then, you see, in 10 through 17, which was read this, this morning, to the second provision, that in threatening times, stand firm in the faith, noting not only the assurance that God has given now, but also the sign that God has granted. You're up to verse 10. And the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Notice now, and this is God speaking this, saying this. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Now notice it began capital L small O-R-D. No, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the covenantal promise-keeping God. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. It doesn't say ask a sign of your Lord. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. In other words, Ahaz is religious, but he is an unbeliever, like so many in the States and around the world. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, I'm willing to allow you to go to extremes in your ask of me in order to get a signal from me. What's, what's the response here? Evidently, Ahaz is a pre-religious guy. Knows a bit about scripture. Must have something out of Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 floating around in his thought processes. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, it's very possible that what he was doing at this point is that he was referencing something that had been stated, articulated, found in Deuteronomy, where in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God had told the Israelites, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But here's the thing. It's not so much that God is saying, put me to the test. He is saying, Ahaz, I'm putting you to the test. I know scripture better than you. And more than misinterpretation is at stake here, misapplication is at stake here. One of the great challenges I find throughout our country in life group settings, but not here, could be very good on, mis on the whole matter of interpretation the real challenge is the application. We can sometimes identify misinterpretation. The question is, can we identify misapplication? There is misapplication. 
Ahaz is using scripture against scripture. Ahaz is attempting to use God's word against God's word. He's trying to pit God against God. It doesn't work. That's a divided heart. I was reading of an art enthusiast in New York. Had on the walls of his office an outstanding collection of etchings, including one of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And for a long time, he noticed that it persisted in hanging crooked, despite the fact that he straightened it every morning. So at last, he spoke to the lady who cleaned the room each night and asking her if she was responsible for its lopsided condition. Well, yes, of course, she said. I have to hang it crooked to make the tower straight. And I thought about scripture twisting in this world, where so often people will twist scriptures in order to justify opinions. And here now what you find is Ahaz knows enough scripture to misapply scripture Ahaz uses God's word against God's word. In essence, he's using God against God. Doesn't work. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. <laughs> Ahaz, God is putting you to the test, dude. And um, right now, we're not looking at a passing grade at this point. And so he said, hear them. And for the second time, the word goes out to the house of David. And again, what Isaiah is doing is he's forcing them back to the promise that God has delivered in 2 Samuel 7, that this was to be an everlasting kingdom. And Ahaz, then he saw threatened. And the question is, how does this king relate to this eternal kingdom? He is the transmitter of the promise, even though he may not be the beneficiary of the promise. He will be faithless to God's promise, even though God is faithful to his promise. This is all about God. Meanwhile, he continues to check out the water supply. Hear that, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Here he comes. So good. You're up now, you're up now to verse 14. And in verse 14, this is the passage that stands out, that's used by God to get the attention of Joseph when he feels so threatened in life. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, what stands out in that promise. Notice, first of all, it says the virgin, not a virgin. There has been many a virgin in this world, but a virgin, no, the virgin, who in her virginity bears a son, Let that seize your attention. Let that grip your mind. The Hebrew word for virgin is Alma. If anybody has that as a first name. As I explore the Older Testament in the Hebrew, 
Every usage of Alma pertains, in fact, to the idea of a virgin. The virgin shall conceive, not a, but the virgin shall conceive in her virginity, bear a son and call, and that second person feminine for those that follow in the original language, his name, Emmanuel. God with us. John Wesley. Difficult time in life. The best thing of all is God with us. Joseph, falsely accused in prison. The Genesis account tells us the Lord was with him. Book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up in haste, declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like, is like a son of God. United. There's a grace when the heart is under fire. Another way when the walls are closing in. And when I look at the space between what I used to be and this reckoning, I know I will never be alone. There was another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding of how I've been set free, there's a cross that bears the burden where another died for me. There's another in the fire. Ahaz, this is the story of Emmanuel. God is not going to reject his people. He is the keeper of the promise. He is the God with us. That's good news for those who believe. It's bad news for those who do not believe. Which is it going to be, Ahaz, for you personally? Are you content to just simply be the transmitter of the promise, but not the beneficiary? Or will you personally put faith and trust in this promised one to come? Ah, uh, it's going to be hard. He shall eat curds and honey. We're up to 15 when he knows how to refuse the evil, choose the good, and before the bow knows... The boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted, which is what happened to Israel. But 1948 came along, if you follow your history. And then they regained statehood. 
And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Third time a reference now to the promise to the house of David. Such days as I have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. But you will return home, you see. You will return home. And because remember Isaiah's son, Shear Yeshub, a remnant shall return. In the midst of the fire of life, there's Emmanuel, God with us. One of the volumes in my library is the history of medicine. And there's this extraordinary story out of England of this great British surgeon, uh, Dr. Moynihan, had finished operating for a gallery full of distinguished visiting doctors, as well as nurses, as well as residents and, and students. And, he was then being interviewed afterwards how he could work with such a crowd present. I love the response. He said, you see, there are just three people in the operating room where I operate, the patient and myself. But that's only two, the questioner commented. Who's the third? And Dr. Moynihan responded, the third is God. And so in 1945, Bonhoeffer goes home to be with the Lord. And in the process, the entire prison body responds with this thunderous, God is with us, and he is. Let's stand together. In the midst of threatening times, it's time for some self-counsel. Emmanuel. God with us in our trials. Emmanuel, God with us in our isolation. Emmanuel, God with us in our sufferings. Emmanuel, God with us. For one watching online, for those in the various services, there's any father that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They know the story about Jesus, but have not yet experienced the presence of Jesus. Know something about him, but have not yet experienced what it takes within self. I pray now they will put faith and trust exclusively in the one who's been called Emmanuel and understand that this is forever. You and that person forever. And for this Father, we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.